This Torah class is brought to you by TorahAnytime.com. Before I begin, I have to give a shout out me, to my the two partners, Chazak, who always do a tremendous job here locally and to Torah Anytime. Um, well, you hear that today. Anyway. I have the sheet from last year's Torah Anytime Tisha B'Av event. This is what they brag. They brag about six continents, 92 countries, almost 2,000 cities, 188,000 Jews joined last year in the worldwide Torah Anytime Tisha B'Av event, and I have a feeling it's going to be far surpassed this year. So, Chazak Baruch, again, both to Chazak and to Torah Anytime. There are two themes that we should be focusing on on Tisha B'Av. The first theme is understanding, as Rabbi Ben-Sassan said to us, how much we are lacking, how much the life we are leading now isn't the way it's supposed to be, isn't the way Hashem wants it to be. And you don't have to go too far. Ask the person next to you. Look them in the eye and ask them that key, critical question. Are you happy? And I'm sorry to be the bearer of bad tidings, but the vast majority of the human population are not happy. And the reason they're not happy is because they're lost. And unfortunately, that includes us. As much as we think we're growing and we're accomplishing, seeing Hashem present right here, Dominating to Hashem and being ready to understand, I, me, speaking to God, the creator of the heavens and the earth. Do you understand what Shemona Esrei means? If you understood, then you and I would pass out. Because little me, conversing with God, the creator of the heavens and the earth, is an awe-inspiring experience. But that doesn't mean... It means recognizing that Hashem is here, speaking to my Creator, directly speaking to Hashem right here. But that sense is so lost. We're so covered up by layers and layers of physicality. And if you don't know why we need to end this exile immediately, just look at the pain. I think it was about nine years ago, I was speaking in a girls' camp in the summer. And a very sweet, innocent young woman came over to me and asked me if it's permitted to cut on Shabbos. Now, <clears throat> I had learned Shulchan Aruch. I learned the Shabbos. I didn't understand her question. I said, what do you mean? She said, well, I'm in such intense pain that the only way I can relieve the pain is by cutting myself. And by concentrating on the pain of the cut, it relieves my emotional pain. Am I allowed to do that on Shabbos? When I heard the question, I was aghast. But that was many years ago, folks. Of all the magazines, the one that's most closely guarded, the one that's so careful not to let any influence from the outside world in is Mishpacha. I write for all the magazines. I can tell you, no one gives me a tough time like Mishpacha magazine. Last week's edition had four pages. Four pages 
written by a young woman who was celebrating her third anniversary of not self-harming herself. And the entire article describes a struggle and how she almost gave in. But this is a mainstream magazine in our community, meaning to say it's become so prevalent, so out there, so regular, that it becomes part of the dialogue. Ladies and gentlemen, healthy, wholesome people don't self-harm. A normal society doesn't have what we experience today. And more than anything, it's not the way Hashem wants it to be. Look at this world, beautiful, gorgeous, study nature, study physics. You'll see a world created with such wisdom, such care, such forethought for you to enjoy. Because Hashem is a native. And if you look at an orange and an apple and you study a watermelon, you see the flavors and aromas and textures and colors that Hashem put in the world for us to enjoy. You realize that Hashem is more magnanimous, giving, loving than anyone you and I could ever imagine. But take that love and multiply it 10,000, 10,000 times. You don't understand an inkling of the love that Hashem has for every one of His creations. And Hashem did not want the world to be as it is now. What Bechira means is a fundamental question, free will. And that no one understands that Hashem wants us to enjoy, to be happy, to be in our land, to feel fulfilled, to be Ola Regal, to go up to Yerushalayim and experience Hashem's presence as no human being has. And that's one theme of Tishabov. Sitting on the floor, crying, and realizing that we don't even know what we don't have. We look around and we assume this is life. This is as good as it gets. And with all respect to Rabbi Ben Susan, as great as Eretz Yisrael is, it's still, still gullus. Mashiach hasn't come. And you'll still see many things in Eretz Yisrael that aren't supposed to be, but more than that, we don't feel Hashem Shechina. The whole world isn't lit up. When Mashiach comes, every Jew, every Gentile, every human being sees Hashem palpably. Right there. Every Jew becomes a Novi, meaning to say we get it. We cut through all this darkness. We see Hashem. We understand why we're created. There's world peace, but not because someone forces world peace, but because every human being knows why they're put on the planet. Every human being sees Hashem, and every human being only wants to do what's good, what's right. Humanity returns to a different state. Joy, happiness, serving Hashem with complete utter simcha. And that's not the life we lead now. And that's one theme of Tishabov, focusing on what we don't have, what's lacking. But there's another theme. And the second theme is what we can and what we should do about it. And Chazal tell us the second base of Migdash was destroyed for sinas chinam, baseless hatred. And you have to understand that we haven't seen the base of Mikdash. We don't know what we're lacking. So how are you faulting me for their sins when they were there? How am I held accountable? Why am I suffering? And Ghazal explained to us that any generation that didn't rebuild it, what that means is you're equally guilty. Because Hashem wouldn't punish a generation if you weren't involved in the same thing. Hashem doesn't punish children for sins of the fathers. And any generation in which Mashiach hasn't come, their job is to repair the damage and sinas chinam. Baseless hatred is our work, is our job. 
And I believe that's the second theme of Tisha B'Av, eliminating from within our midst baseless hatred, sinus chinam. So let's start on that topic. And let me start with an observation. Baseless hatred isn't. Never happened and never will happen. I challenge you, find a rational thinking person and ask him, do you hate that guy? I hate his guts. Do you have a reason? Absolutely not. No reason whatsoever. I just hate him. Well, why do you? I don't know. I just hate him. I spill his blood. I hate his guts. Why? I don't know why. I, I just hate him. What do you mean baseless sinaschinam? Sinaschinam means there's no reason. I don't know a sane, rational person who hates anyone without a reason. I'll give you a reason. I'll give you ten reasons. I'll give you very, very good, clear reasons why I hate that guy. So what does that mean? Sinaschinam, baseless hatred. And let's see if we can understand what Chazal is sharing with us and what our job is supposed to be on Tisha B'Av. But you call Aretz Safa Achas and the entire world, humanity spoke one language, Udvarim Achadim, and had one focus. This is about two, three hundred years after the Mabal, in Beratius, the Torah describes the generation. But listen to the description. Safa achas, one language. Humanity was at peace. They had one common interest. Safa achas, because Hashem created the human being speaking Hebrew, Belashon HaKodesh. That's how Adam was programmed. And every generation afterwards only spoke one language. Safa achas, Hebrew. Everyone spoke Hebrew. Udvar Machadim and the entire world had one unifying principle. Now, doesn't that sound wonderful? It sounds like the Dara Flug had everything you could ever imagine. Barash explains what was the Dvar Machadim. They were banded together with one principle, <clears throat> destroying Kedusha in the world, fighting a war against God. See, we're clueless, we're atheists, basically, not you, but maybe me. We don't see Hashem, we're like spaced out. But there was a time when human beings saw Hashem very, very clearly. And you were either with the program or against it. And as hard to understand as it is, there were many, many people who saw Hashem and rebelled completely, totally against their Creator right there. To allow for free will, Hashem gives each generation a different test. And that was a generation of their time. Nimrod was a Gibor Chayel. He was a powerful leader of men. He was also the king. And he led his people to create a new society. They left the populated area. They went to a bika. They went to a valley, and began a city. The purpose of the city was to create a shoresh, a place for Tumah. And the Al-Sheikh explains exactly what was going on. Yerushalayim is the holiest city in this world. And in Yerushalayim there's one area, the base of Bechira. In the center is the Kodshe Kedoshim. That is the holiest spot on the planet. Their goal was to equalize that with Tumah. They were building a city building an ear and a migdal, a tower. Their goal was to put a root to Tumah. Now don't worry about the fact that you and I don't even know what that means. They did. And they banded together one language, one people, joined together, and set out on their mission. And the Surno explains that they would have succeeded. They would have succeeded, and do you know why? Because as Rashi says very clearly here, they had one element that no other generation before them had. Ava Vareus. 
And when Hashem turns to the Beisdin Shamala, to the Heavenly Tribunal, and says, what are we going to do about this problem? He couldn't destroy them as he did the generation of Noah. And you know why? Because exactly what Rashi says, they acted with love, they acted with brotherly, commonly interest, they were together. And therefore Hashem says, I can't destroy them. Hashem says to his Beisdin, we're going to have to undo this. Hashem comes down, Bilbel Lashonam, Instantly, every human being in that society begins speaking different languages. Until then, Hebrew was the one language. Instantly were the predecessors of German, Latin, and Spanish. And instantly, instead of one language, they now spoke 70 languages. And the next passage explains, because of this, they had to leave. They couldn't live together. No longer could they band together. No longer could they build a city. They spread up. And Rashi explains why. And Rashi explains because they were on the work site. And the man asked for a brick. But he asked for a brick in German. And the fellow listening then suddenly spoke Spanish and didn't understand him. So instead of handing a brick, he handed mortar. What, you gave me mortar? The guy who asked for the brick took a hammer, smashed him on the head. They began fighting, screaming, kicking. They couldn't live together. From utter, complete harmony, they went to such disunity that they had to spread out to the four corners of the earth Hashem disbanded them by changing the language. Now, ladies and gentlemen, I'd like to ask the obvious question here. You love each other. You're banded together with one mission, fighting God. Very dedicated. Okay, suddenly something happens. I no longer understand you, and you no longer understand me. Why can't you live together? We'll have the German section building this part of the tower, the French section building this, the Latin speakers here. Why are you all of a sudden smashing each other over the head? What happened? And to share with you what happened, I'd like to share with you a very basic concept that a lot of us aren't attuned to. In psychology today, there's something called theory of mind. Theory of mind means that I have different beliefs, understandings, feelings, and emotions than you do, but because I'm reasonably intelligent, I can understand that you might have different beliefs than I do. You might have different feelings about something than I do. And I can anticipate what your feelings are and what your beliefs are by your outside actions. If you see a woman waiting for a bus, she's running for the bus, and the bus doesn't stop and runs, you know she's likely frustrated. It doesn't take a genius to realize that. Likely her emotional state is not joy and happiness. Likely it's very displeasure. But that concept called theory of mind isn't so obvious and isn't available to all human beings. There are certain cognitive disorders, Asperger's, autism spectrum, where people do not have that cognition. And as a matter of fact, there's an interesting test to tell that psychologists will give to little children to determine whether they understand theory of mind or not. And listen to this test. They'll take a child and they'll say to the child as follows, Sally has a candy. Here's a box, and here's a house. Sally put the candy under the box, and then she went out of the room. When Sally was out of the room, I took the candy, and I moved it from under the box, and I put it under the house. And then they'll ask the child, when Sally comes back in the room, where is Sally going to look? Now, obviously, Sally is going to look where she left the candy, because that's what she knows. And 80% of four-year-olds get that right away. Yet if a child is on the autism spectrum, 
on the Asperger realm, invariably they don't get it. Of course Sally's going to look under the house because that's where you put it. And because he knows it, he assumes Sally knows it, even though Sally wasn't in the room, and even though Sally wasn't there, but if I get it, obviously you get it. If I understand something, clearly you understand something. If I feel something, clearly you feel something. And if you think that it's just autism disorder, I'd like to share with you, you and I also suffer from this very same reality. Let me share you what I mean. There's a woman who earned her PhD, Elizabeth Newton, earned a PhD in psychology at Stanford University for the following experiment. She took group after group, and she gave them the following test. She made tappers and listeners. The tappers' job it was to tap out a tune. She gave them a list of about 50 common tunes, Happy Birthday, Twinkle, Twinkle, Little Star, tunes that everyone would recognize, and she had the tappers tap out that tune. The listener's job was to guess from the tapping what tune it was. And she tried it with group after group after group after group. The tappers would tap out the song. Listeners would listen. And here's what she found. Only 4% of the listeners ever got it right. They almost always got it wrong. No matter how popular the song was, no matter how well known, it's very difficult to discern from just a mere beat what the song was. But that was not the unusual part about the experiment. The unusual part was she asked the tappers what are the odds of the listener guessing the tune correctly. Person after person, 50%. Meaning at least, it's so obvious. It's so clear that at least 50% of the listeners are going to get right. And she asked us to group after group, and group after group she found the same thing. Almost no one got it right, but almost every tapper assumed that the listener would get it right. And do you know why? Because when you tap out a tune, you can't help but sing it in your mind. And when you sing it in your mind, it's so clear, how could you not get it? And if you watch videotapes, the tapper tapping, and the listener getting wrong, and the tapper, what's wrong with you? It's so obvious, don't you hear? How could you not get it? Ladies and gentlemen, that is the number one ingredient in every machlokas, every fight, every disagreement between human beings in any single situation. In my mind, it's so clear, but you clearly don't get it, but I don't understand that you don't get it. And if you don't don't know what I'm talking about, I'll make it a little bit more clear. A few weeks ago, my wife and I walked out of the bank, and my wife tripped and fell to the floor. I said, are you, are you okay? Are you okay? She was okay. She's fit. She's healthy. <clears throat> she got up and got in the car. I asked again, are you okay? Are you okay? Yeah, yeah. Ten minutes later, are you okay? Yeah, yeah, yeah. A half hour later, are you okay? Are you okay? An hour later, are you, are you all right? Yeah, yeah, I'm okay, okay. I must have asked her ten times if she's okay. Now again, my wife is not fragile. She's healthy and well. She exercises regularly. Why did I ask her so many times? You know what the answer is? Because I'm married 30 years. And I'll explain to you what I mean. I vividly remember when I was 15, joining a very elite group. I was a purple belt in karate. I was very into martial arts. There was a brown and black belt seminar, and I wasn't invited. I was only a purple belt. And I was a kid, and everyone else were adults. I wheedled my way in, and it was a two-hour seminar, and everything went fine and well. Until the end of the seminar, there was an elimination circle. 
What's an elimination circle? Basically, all the martial artists link arms, one next to another, to make a big circle. And it starts from the lowest rank in the circle. He throws a round kick to the guy next to his chest, hits him right here. And the kick goes around one to the next to the next, and it's called the elimination circle because basically you eliminate the weaker and the last man standing is the winner. Anyway, I thought of myself as a pretty tough kid, and I was a lot lighter and a lot lower rank than everybody. I ain't falling out. <clears throat> the first kick came. <clears throat> I took it. Kick went around. Went Some people started dropping out. It went from about 35 to about 25. Second kick. <clears throat> got it. No problem. <clears throat> went around. Now it's about 15 people. Third kick. I'm doing fine. It gets to about seven people when the guy next to me gets knocked out. He sits down, and suddenly I link arms with Sensei Le Puppet. Sensei Le Puppet was 35 years old. He was then, I believe, a fifth done, fifth degree black belt, six foot two, weighed about 210 pounds, and I was a 115 pound, 15 year old punk. And he was a very respectful sensei, and he looked at me and he said, little brother, are you in? And I said, hi sensei! I ain't sitting out for this one. He said, okay. I saw the flash of his foot. I felt the ball of his foot dig into my solar plexus, and I didn't know which part was going to burst first. But one thing I knew, I was out of it. And I sat down, my ego a little bit bruised, but I'll come back next time. You're not getting me out. Okay, that was me when I was 15. And then I got married. Could you imagine if the first year of my marriage, my wife had tripped? Hey, okay, are you okay? Any of you have broken bone? No, concussion? No, okay, let's go. We're done. What do you ask it twice, three times, four times? What, what, come on, you fell, big deal. I've gotten smashed, I've gotten hit, I've gotten knocked out. What, what's the big deal? You fell to the concrete, what's the big deal? What are you making a big fuss of? But gentlemen, let's understand, I'm not callous, I'm not cruel, I'm not an evil person. But in my experience, falling to the ground was not a big deal. And that is the greatest trapping in every human relationship, where I define reality based on my experience. Not realizing that the other person might have a very different experience and their reality might be very different than mine. And that is the first ingredient in any machlokas. But you need two more for it to be a real bona fide <coughs> raging war. The second one, I had a couple in my house <coughs> a couple of weeks ago. And they were having a lot of shalom bias problems, a lot of serious issues in their marriage. And it stemmed from the fact that the woman had done something, and he could not forgive her. To be honest with you, what she had done was not that horrific. I've heard worse. It wasn't like a... Okay. But he couldn't forgive her. He couldn't let it go. But that wasn't the unusual part. The incident happened 14 years ago. And for 14 years, he's been harboring ill will. For 14 years, he's been almost not talking to her, harboring this scent of resentment and to the point where he really utterly disliked her. I hate to say the words, maybe even more. But here was the problem. I saw them both there, but I also saw his anger, his vehemence, and I realized we're in trouble, folks. So I asked her to step outside. And sometimes Hashem puts interesting ideas into your brain. So I said to him, so, we're going to get divorced? Absolutely not. I cannot, I cannot get divorced. I have kids, I cannot get divorced. So I said, so what are we going to do? I don't know. So I said, if you're not getting divorced, what are we going to do? 
It's going to end. What are we going to do? He looks at me. I look at him. And I didn't say a word. And then I said to him, well, wait a minute. Let me ask you a question. Let's say it wasn't you. Let's say a friend of yours came to you with this exact question. What would you say to him? So he says, well, I would say to him, da-da-da-da-da. And I said to myself, ooh, that's pretty good. So I said, but what if he says to you, da-da-da-da-da, and I played back one of his lines. Well, I would say to him, da-da-da-da-da. We went on for 45 minutes. He said every line as well as I would have said it, maybe better. He had every single answer to why he should have forgiven her long ago. And it wasn't that egregious an act. And really, he's the one who's destroying his marriage. And we went on back and forth, my playing his role and his playing the other role. And after 45 minutes, he was in a vastly different place. And then I asked him, okay, bring in your wife, please. He went out, and his wife came in, and his wife said, what did you say to him? He's a changed person. What did you say to him? And I said the truth. I said nothing. Because that's what I said. So what's going on? The guy's ruining his life for 14 years. Would you like to know what's going on? At the very end of that conversation, he said to me the eye-opening line. He said, you know, I never, ever had this conversation with anyone, certainly not myself. I never took this position. I never thought about it from this angle. I never did the other side of this. So let me clue you into human dynamics 101. We human beings can be brilliant, insightful, highly intelligent, until we get angry, and then we become dumb as sin. As a matter of fact, they now have functional MRIs that trace the neural pathways. The front part of the brain, the frontal cortex, that's where the seat of housing goes on. That's where you think, should I, shouldn't I, judgment? When a person gets angry, there's a hijacking. The thought process doesn't even go there. It goes right to the middle of the right to the part of the brain, that, the limbic system to get you excited. And before you even have a chance to think, you're angry. But anger is not intelligent. Anger is not thought out. Anger is reactive. Anger is dumb. And no matter how smart you are, no matter how intelligent you are, if you're operating through jealousy or anger, hostility or ego or whatever emotion it might be, you are dumb. And this man was actually very, very intelligent acting like a fool for 14 years, destroying his marriage, when all he had to do was one thing, turn the brain on on. But because he was thinking not through his brain, but through anger, he didn't do it. And this is the second ingredient necessary for any machlokas, any argument with a co-worker, with a friend, with a sibling, certainly with a spouse. <clears throat> Number one, there has to be a misunderstanding of where they're coming from. I have to view things one way and assume, of course, he views it the same. There has to be a fundamental lack in my alignment of my understanding of the world to his. And number two, it's got to cause some emotional pain. If there's some pain in there, there's some personal stuff in there, suddenly I get hurt or angry or jealous or whatever it may be, my emotions flare up, and now I'm two-thirds of the way to a bona fide major fight. But there's one more part that you need, otherwise you'll never get there. The third ingredient is a very interesting one. My wife has a good friend who I can say with utter confidence has beautiful midos. This woman never has a bad word to say about anyone. 
and she is so, so favorably judges everyone. And I've heard her say these words, and I believe that she actually believes them. She says with a full heart, I love every Jew. I love every Jew. And she really does. Okay. A few years ago, this woman was in Israel, and she was on a hike, a long hike. And when she was done, she was extremely thirsty, very hot. She walked into a store. Her Hebrew is somewhat limited, but she walked into the store and said to the fellow behind the, the counter, if she cannot soda, could I buy a soda? And the man looked at her and said, no. Vakashan, you cannot soda. And said, no. Vakashan, you soda. Lama, Angli. I don't have soda. She looks behind the counter and she sees bottles and bottles and bottles and bottles of soda. And she realizes this guy is, he's either a creep or he's making fun of a dumb American. He's just a, he doesn't, doesn't he understand? I'm hot, I'm tired, I ask him for a basic thing, I'm, I'm going to pay for it. And he decides to pull this cruel joke. So she says, I don't have, I told you already. Now she's livid, she's furious. This guy is an absolute creep. And she says in her broken Hebrew, what do you mean you don't have? Look at that bottle, that bottle, that bottle. In the soda, the Sprite, soda. Because soda means seltzer. And he didn't have seltzer. And what he heard her asking for was seltzer, but what she was asking in his language was something that he didn't have. And the third ingredient that you have to have for any fight, number one, you have to total mis- have a miscommunication. <clears throat> number two, you have to have that emotional part of it. And you have to have this third element. You see, it doesn't matter how good your midos are. It doesn't matter how much you love another person. And once it becomes personal, you become blind, and then you do what we always do when we're in this situation. We demonize the other person. I asked him for soda, and he won't give me soda. Isn't it obvious that he knows exactly what I mean? I said it three times, four times. I speak Hebrew, he speaks Hebrew, he knows what I need. And it bothers me like anything that he's making an idiot of myself, so I'm personally very upset. Neural hijacking, you're gone, and then starts the demonizing process. It's obvious he's a creep, he's a bum, he's a whatever. Fill in your own term. But ladies and gentlemen, that's something that we do all the time. A difference of mindset becomes personal, and then I demonize the person, and if you're not sure that I'm right, ask somebody who's married. Not you and I, folks, but every other married couple does it on a regular basis, and it's just part of the game. And I believe that's exactly what Rashi's sharing with us. Would you like to know what happened on that building site? They were unified as one unit. One goal to fight Hashem, but they spoke one language. The minute Hashem changed their language, suddenly I asked for the brick, and the guy gave me mortar. Why'd you do that? Everyone knows that brick means brick, and mortar means mortar. I've never in my life not had somebody understand what I mean. I've never in my life had asked for something and got the opposite. Why'd you do that? I know why you did it. You did it to bother me. So I ask a second time, and again you blow it. And a third time, and again you blow it. And finally I get it. You're doing it for one reason. You're a creep and a louse. Take a hammer, smash them. They couldn't live together. They spread them out. They couldn't be together as one unit. And ladies and gentlemen, if that sounds like it's strange, if it sounds like it's funny, I believe that it's absolutely as common as the cold. 80% of divorce should not happen. Certainly in our community. 
80% of divorce happens because the couples are doing things that are dumb. And it really falls into two camps. The first camp is, I don't love you anymore camp. And I've seen this time after time after time. The couple gets busy, they have a couple of kids, and there's work and there's responsibilities, and before you know it, they stop going out, they stop spending time together, they start drifting and drifting. Ten years later, fifteen years later, they're sharing the same roof, but nothing else. They're living in two different universes. And that's the first camp of people who end up in that problem area. That camp we're not talking about. This is Tishabov. And that camp, you go to Shmuz.com, you download this marriage seminar, you take your wife out once a week, once a week means once a week, you do what a couple does if they want to foster a relationship, you spend time together, you build that common feeling, you work together as a couple, but that's not today's discussion because that's not Tishabov discussion. It's a very important discussion, but not for today. It's the second group, the ones who do love each other. The ones who really do have a bond, a connection, and really share very good times together, and then say the words, we love each other, but we can't live together. That's today's discussion. And if you'd like to understand that reality, let me make it very clear. Imagine the following situation. A young married fellow comes home from work one day at 6.30. He, as he's about to put his key into the apartment door, he says to himself, wow, Six months of marriage and not a single fight. Wow. Six months of marriage, and she's so grounded and intelligent. I didn't marry one of those flighty girls. Ah, Baruch Hashem, life is great. He turns the key, opens the door, walks in, and sees his wife standing on a chair. What's, what's... She's up on a chair. What's the matter here? What's the matter? What's the matter? What's the matter? What's the matter? What? 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 What is it? What? Fuck me! Huh? Huh? He looks at his wife. Up on a chair. Looks at a stupid little bug in the corner. Huh? Why don't you kill it? Okay. Uh, you can come down now, dear. <laughs> okay? Wow. <clears throat> okay. Scene one. Scene two, two weeks later. He's at work. He owns a store. Very busy at work. And a co-worker, an employee actually, brings him the phone. Boss, you better, it's your wife. She's, something's wrong. Yeah, what is the woman? Come on. What is it? What, what happened? There are two of them. Come on. Huh? What? No, two of them! The big tiger! Come on, please, right now! He hangs up the phone. She's crazy. She's out of her mind. She expects me to leave the store with an employee, leaving it to kill a stupid cat. Is she nuts? All right, listen. Shona Shona, Shalom Bias, he gets in the car and he is fuming. He is steaming. Smoke coming out of his ears. He walks into the apartment and there she is. Where are they? Over there, over there. I hope you're satisfied. Storms out, closes the door behind him with a slam, gets back in his car, goes back to the store. Ladies and gentlemen, who's right? Who's right? So the ladies, of course, will say, she's right. And then, of course, will say, he's right. Would you like to know who's right? Who cares? If it's a court of law, you better know who's guilty and who's innocent. If it's a business transaction, somebody's right and somebody's wrong. But if you're in something called a relationship with human beings, if you would like to be right, 
Goodbye. It's over, baby. Kick it. Goodbye. Because I'd like to share with you that both of them are 100% right, and both of them are 100% wrong. And I'll make it very clear. Now listen, I have six kids. Baruch Hashem, I have uh, four daughters and two sons. And for the life of me, I don't understand why, but the girls are afraid of bugs. As a matter of fact, invariably what happens is when the kids were little, and there was a bug around, they'd call one of the baby brothers to go get it, just hoping that he wouldn't eat it in the process. And I don't know why it is, but generally speaking, the girls are afraid of bugs, guys aren't. I don't know why, but it's a reality. But here's the simple, simple reality. When she's up there on the chair, she really, really is afraid. She's not faking it. And she's not afraid because she's some basket case. She's not afraid because she's Looney Tunes. She's afraid because that's her reality. Her experiences shape the reality, and she is really afraid. Now, on the other hand, our young tycoon over there um, has a business to run. And he really is correct that it's pretty irresponsible for me to close a store or leave it in an employee's hands to go kill a stupid bug. But you see, this is the point. If you'd like to know who's right and who's wrong, you're asking the wrong question. If you want to ask an intelligent question, is what's going on there? And I want to share with you the two most important words you'll ever use in a marriage, you'll ever use in any strained relationship, whether it be with your parents, your children, your coworkers, your neighbor, the two most important words. Anyone know what they are? So I usually get a what? Are you all right? That's not bad. I'm sorry. It's pretty good. How about uh, anyone for yes, dear? No, not that either. Not I'm sorry, not I'm wrong, not yes, dear, not I'll do it now, no. Not even I love you, uh-uh. You're welcome. <clears throat> not even you're welcome, and not even thank you, uh-uh. The two most important words that you'll ever at least think, maybe don't say, but at least think in your marriage are the words, that's strange. That's strange. And I'll explain to you why. If I asked you which words preceded every scientific discovery, most people say, well, before someone discovered some new chemical, some new process, the person said, Eureka, I've discovered it. Now, legend has it that some guy in the bath in Athens, before he discovered the law of buoyancy, right, he screamed out the word Eureka, ran through the streets of Athens naked. Who was it? Anyone know? Archimedes. Archimedes. Okay, good. Be it as it may, whether it happened or not, I'd like to share with you that almost every scientific discovery is not preceded by the words, Eureka, I've discovered it. They're preceded by the words, that's strange. A person took chemical X and chemical Y mixed it, expected this reaction, and instead got that, that's strange. And then he dug in and figured out the why, and almost every single scientific discovery was discovered because someone said, that's strange, because what I expected to happen didn't happen. Instead, this happened, and they dug in. If that fellow was intelligent, when his wife was up on the chair, screaming, what he would have said to himself, not to her, to himself were the words, that's strange. She's a grounded, intelligent young woman. She never acts like some flighty bird. Why is she up there on the chair screaming? And he would have reached a conclusion, hopefully, that her reality is different than hers. But ladies, don't make a mistake that it's all the guy's fault here. She's equally guilty because she started brooding. I can't believe it. I don't believe it. And I finally get married. I finally don't have to worry about these things. And my best friend, the guy I'm supposed to really trust, not only isn't he sensitive, he acts so cruel, I hope you're happy, satisfied, mm, satisfied. Do you know how many times in our brain that tape played over? I hope you're satisfied. 
I don't know how many thousands of times it played over in, his brain, in her brain, but over and over and over, and she quickly reached the conclusion. Do you know why he said those words? Do you know why he acted that way? Because he's a cold-hearted creep, that's why. And he doesn't care about me, and he doesn't love me. <clears throat> and that's good if it just stops that he doesn't love me, because it usually gets a lot worse than that. <clears throat> And ladies and gentlemen, this I believe is such an obvious step, but we all blow it all the time. Step number one, step number one to any human relationship is understanding that my viewpoint isn't necessarily his viewpoint. The way I feel about things doesn't mean he feels that way. Number two, once I get angry, once I get hurt, once I get emotionally involved, I'm blinded. I'm blinded and I don't see. And because I'm blinded and I don't see, my brain shuts off. And I can be brilliant, I can be insightful, but I'm going to think like a moron. I'm going to think like an automaton just reacting, and I could do the same stupid thing for 14 years, wreck my life, and not even realize it. And again, the third part of this is when I then demonize, when I then say the words, it just goes to show you that's who he is, That's what he's about. That's what's going on. My friends, I think there's a tremendous lesson to be learned from this for all human relations. By the way, marriage is but a more intense relationship, but every other relationship is exactly the same. You ever notice that we get along well with everybody but not our spouse? Why is that? Well, the answer is because if someone says something I don't like, I don't associate with them. If someone does things in a way that's different than me, I sort of step away. We're very socially skilled not to actually have to deal with the ins and outs of things. But some relationships don't allow for that. With your parents, it doesn't allow for it. With your children, it doesn't allow for that. With your spouse, it doesn't allow for that. And the real work, the real growth is understanding that my experience doesn't define reality. And if you don't think what I'm saying is true, just think back to any fight you've ever had with anybody. I guarantee it starts with that understanding that this is the right way to do things. Now, one last step, and then I'm going to close. Um, has anyone, anyone here married? Married? There's single people. Oh, there's some single guys in the front. Okay, you guys are exempt. You guys are free from this. No criticism to you guys at all. Um, okay, anyone who's married, men or women, Have you ever had this sneaking little thought, life would be so much better if only my spouse was whatever it may be? Anyone ever have that? I've done this because I I have fun sometimes. Before I give a marriage seminar, I hand out cheats. And I say, one of the questions I sort of sneak in so nobody notices that snuck in is, if the following two things would change, my marriage would be much better. And I know what the answer is going to be. You know what the answer is? If the following two things would change, my marriage would be much better. If my husband would X, Y, and Z. If it's a woman for that, it's my wife would be X, Y, and Z. It's always the other one. It's always if my spouse would change, if my spouse would different, if my husband was more on time, if my wife was better. It's always... By the way, how do I know I'm right, by the way? First of all, the study shows it, but what, listen to this one. They did a study of a thousand divorced couples. That means the men and the women. And they asked both sides... Did you work hard on the marriage? And the answer is 75% said, yes, I worked very hard on the marriage. But only 25% said their spouse worked hard. Meaning most people said, I worked very hard on the marriage, but my spouse didn't. The funny part was that it was both sides of the divorce. 
Now, if I worked real hard and you didn't, how do you say you worked real hard and I didn't? And the answer is because you're the problem if you just change. And ladies and gentlemen, people get married, everything's wonderful, and then for the next 20 years, each one dreams of changing the other. Here's how it goes. When they're going out, she's so, and wow, every date is so exciting. It's like electricity. He's always going and moving, and it's great. Then they get married, and she discovers that his ADD behavior is pretty hard. He loses the keys. He probably lost a baby. He can't remember anything. So she spends the next 20 years trying to change him. When they were going out, he always felt so valiant, so like a knight in shining armor. She'd get nervous or worried, and he'd come in to save the day. Then they get married, and uh, he discovers that every Arab Shabbos is high drama, and she's the queen. So he spends the next 20 years trying to change her. And each person spends the rest of their married life trying to change the other. And guess what? It doesn't work. But why doesn't it work? Do you know why? you know why he's ADD? Because that's the way God made him. He's wired that way. Should he work on himself? Yeah, that's his job to work on himself. And he will, and he could, and he should, somewhat. But that's the way he's wired. You know why she's nervous? Because that's the way God created her. That's her nature, that's her temperament. And if you stop looking at the other side of Mechitz and you look at yourself, you'll see there's a lot to change on your side, not on the other side, and suddenly life is very different. But you see, I see it so clearly. I understand how much better life would be if you'd just be organized, if you'd just be on time. In my mind, that tune is playing so clearly. I'm a tapper, and I see it so clearly, and I understand it so well. Why don't you just get it? And one thing, ladies, if you're not sure that I'm right, anyone ever have the feeling, if you really love me, I wouldn't have to explain to him why it bothers me. <laughs> ah, Ruach HaKodesh ended with the Chorban bias, the destruction of the temple, <clears throat> ended Nevoah. If he really loves you, and he might really love you, he doesn't have a clue. But why? Why can't he just be normal like me? Because he's not you. He's a man, you're a woman. But more than that, even if you were the same gender, he really has a different emotionality, a different temperament, different belief system. He's a different human being, and he doesn't get you. And what you got to do is communicate. I think this Rashi shares with us a tremendous concept. They were Amecha, they were one nation. Safach, they spoke one language. Hashem says they're unstoppable. Because there's no machlokas. Change the language, ah, everything changes. You know why? Because now there's going to be miscommunication. And once there's miscommunication, I have all the room in the world to say, you idiot, something so obvious like mortar, you don't understand what I'm saying? I know you understand exactly what I'm saying. Why are you doing it? I know why you're doing it. To bother me, that's why. To bother me. And you know why you're bothering me? Because you're a creep and a bum. First, it's the theory of mind. I don't get your belief system. And then it's, it's personal and I become blind. And then number three, I demonize your A and fill in a blank. And says Rashi, it ended smashing each other's heads. They couldn't live together because once it starts, it doesn't end. And ladies and gentlemen, this is not only about marriage, although marriage is a very big deal. And all Chazal say that sinaschinam caused the destruction of base Amigdash and it's our job. Baseless hatred doesn't mean you don't have a reason. Oh, you have a very good reason. But your reason is wrong. The Torah gives you very specific times when you're allowed to hate someone. But I guarantee it's not because you burnt the kogel or insulted you or called you the wrong or whatever it may be. And not because he didn't bring enough money or whatever it might be. I guarantee those reasons are not the Torah's reasons. And it's baseless hatred, not without reason. Oh, it has got lots of reasons. But those reasons are in your mind. You invented them. You made them up. And you're hating without a justified cause. 
And I think the reason why this is such a big deal is because after you work on being a real mensch, after you work on loving another Jew, and even after you work on your midos, you still have to use great wisdom. Because if it's a coworker, if it's a friend, if it's a boss, and he said that line, and you start brooding, how could he say that? After what I did to him, after what I've done for him, after I've gone so, how could he say it? That's when you have to stop yourself. And you have to say to yourself, wait a minute, maybe, maybe he is a good person. For the past 20 years, he's been kind, good, and normal. Maybe he has a different viewpoint. Maybe he views it from a different point. Maybe he doesn't understand the word soda. Maybe when I said soda, he understood seltzer. You're not going to catch it in the moment, but in the brooding afterwards, when you're really going over it, and we do it again and again, and we play that scene in our mind over and over and over, that's when it's time to stop. That's when it's time to digest and say, wait a minute, that's strange. Here's a good, kindly person who's always considerate, who's always careful. Why would a good, kindly person do that? That's strange. And then you start digging in. And then you start understanding that maybe he's different than I. Maybe he has a different temperament, a different mindset. Maybe it doesn't mean to him what it means to me. Maybe he got smashed over the head a thousand times because he was a karate guy. And maybe falling to the floor isn't a big deal to him. But this work is very difficult because it's part of our essence part of who we are. We're here a lot too long, folks. I'm here at this Beth Gavriel, but I think it's 10 years at least, maybe 11 years I've been here. And each year I was thinking it's over, we're done. And one thing I can tell you, I don't know that society can get any worse. I don't know if life out there can be any worse and I don't know if the time can be any more ripe for Mashiach to come. And just look around at the people who are fundamentally unhappy. By the way, as Kaddish as Eretz Yisrael is, and you heard from Rabbi Ben Susan how wonderful it is, and it is, it's incredible, it's our land, the holy land, what could be better? Not that long ago, as a matter of fact, recently, there was a parade, the Toeva Parade, if you don't know what Toeva means, it means abomination, despicable, abhorrent. Something the Torah calls an abomination. An, an abomination means lech, lech. Lech means it's disgusting. It's abhorrent. It's not, okay, different lifestyle. Or different life. Oh, you're, oh, good. You're, oh, yeah, I'm okay. You're okay. We're, no. Uh-uh. Toeva. Toeva means abhorrent, disgusting. Now, don't get me wrong. If you have an issue and a problem, you work on it. Like anybody has a problem and issue, you work on it. But don't go parading your lifestyle like, it's okay, we're all good. No, you're not. In Tel Aviv, there was a parade. The Toeva Parade. And there were 250,000 people there in our holy land, desecrating the land. The Tukkila Arts of some of the land spits them out. It's time for Mashiach. May this be the last Tisha B'Av, may Hashem redeem us. We spend the next one in Shlaim Abnuya. You've just experienced another Torah class brought to you by TorahAnytime.com.